Welcome to Coach House Talks. So we've been looking at the knowledge of God. I want to look at how God's knowledge of us shapes our relationship with him. So generally we've been looking at how we think about God. I just want to flip that around a little bit and just think what does God think about us? So let me start with an observation. So an observation that really just touches on what I've just said to you. I notice that we all get on fairly well together in this church. Hands up if you don't get on well with people. <laughs> There's two people at the back, yeah. How did I know you were going to put your hands up? We don't fall out much. We are allowed to be ourselves with each other, which means that we will have a little bit of rubbing up, but hey, that's fine. We understand a fair bit about each other, and this often governs how we act towards one another as well. As we grow in relationship, we learn where each other's limitations are. And because of this, our expectations then have a framework to hold them in. Knowledge is key in determining our actions when we interact with each other, what we know about each other. Let me give you an example. Mel is scared of heights. Now, I know this because many years ago, I forced her to walk out on a platform connecting the side of a mountain with a cable car in Gibraltar. Okay? This mountain was so steep, the cable car was almost running in absolute, what's the word? Parallel? Parallel with the face of the, the rock. So the only way to get to the cable car was to walk along a platform that connected the side of the mountain to the cable car, which was hanging from its wire. And we thought, hey, let's go on the cable car, Mel. Come on! And I'm not scared of heights, so I kind of waltzed out onto this thing, and then I turned around and Mel was like, <laughs> can't move! I mean, I can joke about it now, but I mean, that was, it was abject, abject terror. Now, I didn't realise how of fear or how much fear she had of heights. I had no idea. I knew that she particularly didn't like heights, but I didn't know what her fear was like. I didn't know how debilitating her fear was until that moment that she stepped out onto that platform and froze. I could not understand the fear because I didn't have the same fear. I couldn't empathize with it. I couldn't get into the mindset. I could just walk straight along the platform getting the cable car. It didn't bother me. Other than, a, hey, I'm just I'm kind of walking on thin air here. For Mel, it was a totally different experience. And one that I couldn't enter into because I had, didn't have that same fear. I've never since asked Mel to accompany me on a cable car. <laughs> because I know Mel's limitations. And I value my health. <laughs> so, scripture tells us in Psalm 139... Verses 1 to 6, and I'm sure many of you know Psalm 139. It's one of many people's favourite psalms. It says, O Lord, you've examined my heart, and you know everything about me. You know when I sit down, you know when I stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see me when I travel and when I rest at home, which is good for those of us that are travelling up and down the country and all times of night. <laughs> you know everything I do. You know what I'm going to say even before I say it, Lord. 
You go before me. You follow me. You place your hand of blessing on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Too great for me to understand. Okay, so here is God's knowledge of us, of you. And it's fairly all-encompassing, wouldn't you agree? Sitting or standing, working or resting, traveling or at home, there is nothing of us that God does not know. How amazing is that? Famously, this this same psalm talks about God's knowledge of us even in the womb where we are fearfully and wonderfully made. He knew us before we were born. I mean, the, the whole extent of this psalm is to tell you that God knows you absolutely, intimately, everything about you. Which also tells me I can't run and hide from him which the psalm also makes mention of. There's nowhere I could go. I couldn't run away from you. You know everything. You know everything. You know where I go. You know what I'm about. The fullness of God's understanding and knowledge of us should not be missed here. We're his creation. And he knows the consequences of the sin that we are also therefore born into. He knows it. He's not kind of, you know, he's not outside of it. He doesn't, he's not like me with Mel's fear, that I didn't understand Mel's fear. God understands everything about you, including the state that we find ourselves born in. And that's really important for us to kind of grasp hold of. Because often we kind of tussle with God and go, well, you don't understand me and you don't understand what I'm going through and what I'm going through is totally unique to me and not to anyone else. And God says, no, I know you. We can never cry out or use as a lame excuse the fact that God does not know or understand me. Because he does. But it also helps us to understand why God acts in the way that he does towards us. His knowledge of us fashions the way that we have relationship with him. You see, he chooses to love you, and he loves me, even though he knows all of our failures. How amazing is that? He knows that we can't love properly. He knows that we fail. He knows that we've got lots of stuff going on in our lives, which separate us from him, and and we detach our minds and our hearts from him very often, I think. And he knows that we do it. And he still loves us. And he still is just, his, his, his eye is always towards you. So let's go back to the way that we are with each other. The reason that we have peace with each other is that we generally know which buttons to avoid pressing with each other. Now, admittedly, some people's filter settings are a little skewed, <laughs> but generally, we will avoid saying or doing things that will create friction between us knowingly. Okay? So if I know that... I'm going to pick on you, Jamie. If I know that Jamie is a little bit intolerant towards something, I am not going to kind of pressurise him on those points, am I? I'm going to avoid them. (laughs) Actually, he knows that I do. 
Uh, but actually, sometimes we do have to. Sometimes we have to kind of straighten out the things that are wrong, and sometimes God asks us to kind of interact with each other. So I'm not saying we avoid each other's faults. What I'm saying is we don't kind of just go out of our way to upset somebody for the sake of it. God would never do that with us. So if God's putting his finger on something that's wrong in your life, he's not doing it to make your life particularly painful for no reason. He's doing it because he wants to sort out that thing in your life and make your relationship with him stronger. Okay? That's why it's important to know how God knows about us or thinks about us. See, sometimes we do fall out, sometimes we say things that are misconstrued or they're just wrong, and that's simply because of our human frailties and our failures, okay? Which, again, God is aware of. But we're often not aware of each other's. So you can see the friction that we might have with one another, but it's not the friction that we can expect to have in our relationship with God. Because God knows all about us. He knows why we act like we do. And he's full of love and grace and understanding on it. We're not so good with grace and love and understanding with each other, are we, sometimes? So this helps us how to understand how we often think about God. And let me tell you, we often think about God, surprise, surprise, imperfectly. Note the writer of the psalm, King David in this instance, makes the statement that God's knowledge of him is too wonderful, meaning it's so expansive, it's so full, that it's incomprehensible for the human mind to understand it or get to grips with it. This is King David writing this. It's, God, you are so big. Your, your understanding of me is so massive that even me, who's in really close relationship with you, writing these psalm after psalm after psalm to you and proclaiming your kingship and headship and sovereignty, even I am saying, it's just, I can't understand it. I can't get to grips with it. It's just beyond me. And what he says is, I just have to experience it. Knowing that the scriptures reveal the depth and magnitude of his extravagant love. So often when you read David's Psalms, you'll find that he just goes, there's all these things wrong, blah, 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 blah. And then the very last line is, but you're God. And because you're God, it's fine. Because you know me and I know who you are. After all, Paul, in his letter to the Ephesians, encouraged the early believers with these words. Ephesians 3, 16 to 19. And this is Paul's prayer to the believers. I pray that from his, that's God's glorious, unlimited resources, that he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit. Then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him, and your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, how long, how high, and how deep his love is. You see all these passages, they're using terms that kind of, they're not saying, oh, God's love is like this. They're almost describing it with a, you know, I can't put my hand on it, I can't put it in defined I can't box it in, I can't put limits on it, I can't, put, I can't describe it in a way that is just complete. So I have to just go and use every adjective there is, because none of them actually pull in the full 
understanding of who God is. So how long, how high, how deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to understand fully, then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. So there's a few things to pull out of this. We cannot fully understand God's love. But he delivers it to you regardless. Whether you understand it or not, God's love is being poured out to you regardless. My emotions, my ability to cope with people and circumstances is limited, as is yours. God's resources are unlimited. And it's God himself who delivers to us the power to know him. So, if you're struggling to know God and you sat there beating yourself up because I don't read enough, I don't pray enough, I don't do all these things and I still don't get to know God, stop beating yourself up and ask God to help you. Because that's the way it goes. Don't try and do it of your own ability. Don't try and do it with your own kind of, I'm going to ambitiously push forward and do things. Because all that happens is you beat yourself up when you fail. Let God reveal himself to you. Let him give you the power to know him. And it's God's understanding of me that compels him. So I'll use that word, compels him to act graciously and with mercy towards us. It's not that I deserve it and it's not that I can do anything to deserve it either. He is compelled to act graciously and with mercy towards me. Why? Because he knows how I'm born. He knows how I tick. He knows how I fail. He knows how I think. And so he acts regardless. And you might feel that compels is perhaps too strong a word. But this is the view of God that I believe Scripture reveals to us about his nature towards us. C.S. Lewis, and you've heard me say this before, claims that Jesus loves us so much he cannot leave us as he finds us. And I, just, I still think that is a brilliant phrase. Jesus found me in a foul pit of stinking mess. And he didn't just go, hey, I found you. He could not leave me there. He had to change me. He had to do something for me. He had to make me clean. He had to change me. And it's this nature of unfailing love that means that wherever we find ourselves today, tomorrow, next week, wherever we were last week, last month, last year, we are never, ever out of reach of God's rescue, mission, and love. In order to understand the compelling nature of God's love towards us, his creation, we have to comprehend another aspect of God. Hate. Well, there was a term. Hate. Because God hates. Psalm 11. Verses 4 and 7. But the Lord is in his holy temple. 
The Lord still rules from heaven. He watches everyone closely, examining every person on earth. The Lord examines both the righteous and the wicked, and he hates those who love violence. He will rain down blazing coals and burning sulfur on the wicked, punishing them with scorching winds. For the righteous Lord loves justice. The virtuous will see his face. Now again, this is really difficult for us to fathom. But this is because, as we've just said a minute ago, we don't love perfectly. So we don't hate perfectly either. But God does. Whatever our experience of love or hate, it's always flawed. It's always marred by our own fallen condition. God, however, both loves and hates perfectly and is not tainted by emotional feelings. God's love is based on righteousness and righteousness alone. And the opposite, therefore, is also true. God's hate is against unrighteousness, or as we would call it, sin. Anything that opposes the sovereign rule of an almighty God. But we cry, that means that we're all out of reach of God's love. We can't find our way back to God. I agree. And so does God. And this is where his knowledge of us comes in. Because this understanding that we cannot find our way to God, that we are so far removed from him, puts us in a very strange place. Because it tells us that only God can do something about it. Only God can rescue us. Only God can move towards us. And this understanding, the Bible says, is the beginning of wisdom. We are therefore most thankful that God knows us and our state and moves us to bring us out of unrighteousness and judgment, which is what's going to come on the unrighteous. And God moves us from that position and he brings us into righteousness and mercy. Now you might not feel very righteous today. You might be sitting there going, or standing here, going, well, I know what I've been doing this week and I know what my thoughts have been and I know where my headspace has been. And you might not feel very righteous. Well, let me tell you that that's a good place to be. That's a good place to be, to understand that you are unrighteous and that only God's righteousness which he has given to you is what allows you to stand in front of an almighty God. His righteousness. Never, ever, ever come to church going, hey, I'm righteous today because of my own abilities. Your righteousness, your covering only comes from God. And he gives it to you when you call upon the name of Jesus. Perhaps an imperfect example of this would be, and I thought long and hard about this, whether this is a good example or not, so it has its failures because it's just an example. But here we go. Maybe this helps us to understand things. My mum hates water. Absolutely is in fear of it. Detests it. Hates it. Alina, you know what that feels like, yeah? 
And her fear and her hate of water and what it could do drove her, it compelled her to make sure that me and my brothers were taught to swim at a very early age so that we would not let the fear of water overcome us. It didn't happen by chance. There was a purposeful decision to act on behalf of my mum. She went, I'm in fear of water, I'm in fear of what it can do, and I'm not going to let my sons have that same fear. I'm going to do something about it. We were given the tools to learn to swim, and even though the water is still capable of drowning us, we have been given the capability to swim in it and through it without fear. Does that make sense? Okay, good. Now, I know it's an analogy, so it has its shortcomings, and it doesn't cover everything adequately, but I think it shows how God's love could not leave us defenseless. God's compelling nature means that he could not leave us defenseless and without hope against the power and sin and our fallen natures. He could not leave us there. He had to act in love because of his hate of unrighteousness and its consequences. We can, of course, choose to ignore God's rescue plan, okay? Preferring to rely on our own merit and understandings. More fool you if you do. Hence the scriptures' continuous warnings against reliance on your own thoughts and understandings above God's. They are simply not reliable and they're... They are absolutely not expansive enough because we've already said that God is beyond our understanding and we can't pull him in a box like we can put our emotions in a box. We know what our limits are. But God's way, way, he has no limits. In order to understand our relationship with God, we have to accept that he knows us better than we know ourselves. We have to accept that. It's kind of this founding principle. God acts in compassion and mercy to all those who call out on him and accept the sacrifice of Jesus for our continual failings. And a truly righteous God has to eventually move against unrighteousness. He's not going to let unrighteousness just tick on forever. Okay, do not be fooled into thinking that God, because he's not acted against unrighteousness, because this is what happened to the early church even, just because God has not acted yet, he's not going to. Because he is. Because the Bible tells you as much about what God's love is for you, but it also tells you about how he's going to act in justice. Because he has to. Unrighteousness and his promises are still legitimate and again are only understandable when we have a clear review of God's knowledge of us. He has to act against unrighteousness. 1 Peter 3 verse 18. Christ suffered for our sins once and for all. He never sinned, but he died for sinners to bring you safely home to God. There is the rescue plan. There is God's moving his compelling nature to rescue you. God's righteousness demands that he acts and judges unrighteousness, and his love compels him to rescue his creation from it. 2 Peter 3, verses 9 
chapter 10. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise. So what was going on here is that people were saying, hey, because he's not returned yet, he's not going to. It's just, uh, just rubbish. We'd expect to see it. We'd expect, see it. we'd expect to see it in our lifetimes, wouldn't we? Because Jesus said that to his disciples. Or did he? Interesting, interesting passage to, to wrestle with. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promises, as some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Thank God for Jesus, who embodies God's love and determination to rescue us. We are a blessed people. And it's precisely because God knows us intimately that he makes the move towards us in order for us to have our relationships made complete. Friends are no longer enemies. Jesus explained a parable in this way, and with this I'll finish. In John 10, verses 7 to 18, this is Jesus speaking. He says this, I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers, but the true sheep did not listen to them. Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and they will go freely and you will find good pastures. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. But my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. A hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He will abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him and he, he isn't their shepherd. And so the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. The hired hand runs away because he's working only for the money and doesn't really care about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep. And they know me just as my father knows me and I know the father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. I have other sheep too. They're not in this sheepfold. But I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice. And there will be one flock with one shepherd. The father loves me because I sacrifice my life so that I may take it back again. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. For I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again. For this is what my Father has commanded. Which seems very apt as we step into communion and celebrate God's good plan for us. So whatever your state of mind, wherever you find yourself today, be reminded of two things. 
God knows. And he knows why. And he's done something about it. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and at www.coachhousechurch.org.